Trumpet Dynamics is published by the GSD Audio Network. To listen to previous episodes and to subscribe to James Newcomb's prestigious email newsletter, visit trumpetdynamics.com. My featured guest for today is Mr. Gerard Schwartz. Gerard Schwartz was the longtime conductor of the Seattle Symphony. He is currently the conductor laureate of the Seattle Symphony. He is also the conductor of the All-Star Orchestra, which is an orchestra made up of all-stars from all over the United States. And what they do is they produce concerts on video, no audience, and then it's published on PBS, as well as the Khan Academy. The Khan Academy is the largest online uh, learning platform. Uh, there's also a new book that is uh, written about Gerard Schwartz called Behind the Baton, as well as an upcoming release uh, from Naxus Records, a 30-CD release uh, commemorating uh, Jerry's work as a conductor as well as a trumpet player. So Jerry was a trumpet player, uh, trained at Juilliard. Uh, he's going to refer many times in this interview uh, to the Philharmonic. What he's referring to is the New York Philharmonic, where he held the principal chair for a few years uh, before he became a full co full-time conductor with the Seattle Symphony. And oh, by the way, he's also uh, the one of the directors of the Eastern Music Festival, which is held every summer in North Carolina. Now, you're probably wondering, why is it that I am giving all of this information without actually introducing Gerard Schwartz. Well, let me tell you, it's because, um, well, I just, I'm just i just going to be frank with you. I forgot to record the first 10 minutes of the interview. I just was about eight minutes into it, and I looked down at my recorder, and I realized, ah, it's just one of those sinking feelings that you just can't do anything about, and I, sh I really should know better. I was really focused on the content of the interview, and I, I, that's that was my number one focus. And you know what? I just forgot to press record. So what I'm doing is just giving you the preliminary information that we discussed. And what I'm going to do is just have my head librarian put a little note on my computer screen that says press record. And that is going to be funny once you hear the rest of this interview. So I'm going to turn it over with uh, Gerard Schwartz. And he is explaining his worst performance moment, which is something that I ask in each interview. And what he's describing is a couple of times when he was the principal trumpet player with the New York Philharmonic, and he just got a little sunburned. He was a little careless with uh, being in the sun too much, and he had some uh, sunburn on his lips, and it caused some problems. So that is where we are in the interview. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to my conversation with Gerard Schwartz.
And I didn't know what to do. So I asked, I, uh, you know, I was, we had two first, Johnny Ware, but he had left already. So he wasn't there. The other members of the section, I said, would you guys, would you do me a favor? Would you just cover the first part and let me play in the section? I can probably get around it. And quite frankly, and I can't blame them, they weren't willing. And so you're a trooper and do the best you can. Of course, it was not, it was not a stellar performance, but somehow I got through it. I mean, those, both of those, in both of those cases, it was just stupidity. It wasn't a loss of courage or, uh, or frightening or, or not having confidence. The great thing about playing, let's talk brass instruments now, is you have to play with confidence. I remember when I first joined the Philharmonic, the first horn was uh, John Chermonaro, and, and uh, one of my colleagues in the trumpet section leaned over after John played a big solo and said, oh, he's got it now. And now John, I went to, John and I went to college together. We knew each other from Juilliard days. And I said, well, what do you mean? He's always been great. He said, no, 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 he's got it now. I said, well, what does he have now? And, uh, and it was Jimmy Smith. And Jimmy said, he has the confidence. And quite frankly, if you're fearful, you will fail. It's as simple as that. If you have confidence and faith in yourself, you will succeed if you have the ability. Um, my first week, uh, in the Philharmonic, my first subscription week, I should say, we're playing Zarathustra. And every trumpet player knows your life uh, is about four notes. Uh, you know, ba 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 and that's it. I mean, if, if you, if you do it, that's fine. If you have a problem, if you miss, if you crack, basically your life's over. So, I mean, and that's not, of course, that's not true, but that's what you think. And so here, here you are, here I was, uh, at 25 years old playing Zarathustra at the o- opening subscription out of the Philharmonic. And I'm thinking to myself, oh boy, uh, this is, is this really what it's about? Is it really about four notes? Is it really about, I mean, all the hours I practiced, all the music that I made, all the things I care about, and it's just about being perfect. And of course, the answer is yes, that's what that's about. It's not, I mean, can I make a bigger diminuendo than other people? Maybe. Could I play louder than some? Possibly. But that's not really the issue. And, and of course, we always played sea trumpets. We didn't p- play other instruments to fool around like that, and which actually I think is a better thing, but that's a whole nother case. Um, and what I did, and I apologize to all people that may listen to this, what I did is I convinced myself psychologically that it was easy. I said to myself, oh, come on, this is easy. Playing a high C, I've played thousands. I've never missed a high C. I can play a high C loud. I can play it soft. This is easy for me, nothing to it. And then it was. I just convinced myself that it was nothing to it. If I had sat there and said, oh, God, what am I going to do? This is so difficult. It's so exposed. And it's my first subscription concert. I probably would have missed a note. So the idea of confidence is absolutely crucial. And I can't tell you how many times as a player, those same thoughts went through my mind saying, oh, come on, this is for you. This is difficult. Come on, this is easy. You can play things much harder. I mean, no problem. The confidence issue is big. Then, of course, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't play tennis all day and then play a big concert at night. You, you use your intelligence to not make stupid mistakes. Uh, and my other thinking about this, and this is the most important thing. Now, it doesn't reflect on Zarathustra, but it reflects on a lot of other pieces. If you involve yourself musically, if you think about the music, if you're involved with the music, if you're hearing the music, is if the music is your life and your moment, you'll be fine as long as you have the technical ability. Uh, if, you're th- if you're thinking about how difficult something is, you won't be fine. If you have a very difficult passage, if you phrase it, 
you'll make it easier. I mean, I've seen so many times, even as a conductor now, getting hard passages and the strings to be phrased musically, and then all of a sudden, all the technical issues go away. Now, that's assuming you can really play. I mean, you know, uh, you, you can't have confidence if you haven't practiced enough. You can't have confidence if you if you haven't played it perfectly ten times or whatever the number is. So, um, and, and then of course, getting up after you have fallen down, it, it's just you know, it's like anything else in life. You just got to turn the other cheek and do better. And uh, that, that that's my story. <laughs> well, I know that. This is this is a difficult one for a lot of people because they don't want to think about uh, maybe experiences that by all by all means are traumatic. You know who wants to think about that? So I I, I understand that you don't maybe remember something like that, but can you recall maybe as a conductor where you encountered someone who uh, had had an experience like I described, and what did they do to overcome it? <clears throat> well, um, it's not so much that I, I, I don't remember. Believe me, I, with the thousands and thousands of concerts I've played and conducted, the ones that I remember the most are the ones where I, something didn't go well. You don't, you don't forget those. Those are the ones you remember. I mean, all the concerts I was in the Philharmonic, there were two times where it didn't go well. And believe me, I remember them meticulously at every moment, at where they were, when they were, everything about them. Um, as a conductor, you know, it's, first of all, generally speaking, we don't make mistakes. Um, usually it's pretty simple. If you're doing any classical repertoire, you can't make a mistake, really. The only time you can make a mistake is if you're doing the Rite of Spring or Dumbarton Oaks or something, a lot of changing meters. And then, as I say to all conductors, the, the most important thing is you don't make mistakes. If you're doing, if you're conducting a rite of spring, you just don't make any mistakes. Conductors cannot make mistakes. Period. You just don't. And it's the same thing with lots of other repertoire that's difficult in that way. And, and if you're doing a Brahms symphony, if, if you're doing something that's a little bit, that's a little bit wrong, you didn't, you, you daydream for a second, which you should never do. But if it would happen and, and you beat a little wrong, quite frankly, the orchestras will, will keep you going. I mean, they, you know, they're great musicians standing or sitting in front of you and, and they save you, your life. I mean, I remember sitting in the orchestra many times with conductors and I felt like we saved them, especially in the trumpet chair where you can actually control things a little bit. Um, and, 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 you know, when people have had bad nights and it does happen, um, in the orchestra, again, these days, very rarely, there's nothing much you can do. As a conductor, you just, number one, you ignore it. You don't stare at the person. You don't point out that they made a mistake. Because what you do as a conductor is you concentrate harder. Because once someone has a problem, it, it can it can catapult into everybody having problems because everyone gets nervous then. Somebody makes a mistake and the whole orchestra says, oh, God, I, it could be me, you know? And so what you do as a conductor is you focus more, you cue more, you beat a little more deliberately, you do everything you can to make it as easy and uh, possible for the players to to ignore that moment. And, and you never acknowledge it. Now, I've seen conductors acknowledge it. I mean, I remember once going to a concert, I had hired uh, um, Kurt Musler and the Israel Philharmonic to come and play mostly Mozart, and they were doing a Mendelssohn Symphony, and the horn player missed a note. You know, happens. Kurt stared at him. He must have stared at him for 30 seconds after the passage. Think about that. 
so here's the orchestra playing away and he's giving a scowl and staring at the principal horn. What is the orchestra thinking? Oh, isn't this beautiful music? Oh, how wonderful it is to phrase this. Oh, how imaginative the composer was. No, they're just thinking, oh boy, he's staring at him. I better not make a mistake. He's going to do the same thing to me. You know, conductors can have a tremendous adverse effect on the musical result and for that matter, the technical result. I mean, we try primarily to make music, but we also have to make sure that we're doing our best to make it as easy as possible for the players to play their best. Uh, Sometimes it means, you know, conducting a little more meticulously than you might like. Other times it might be the opposite. So what, what you're always thinking, what I'm always thinking is, what can I do to make it the best musical performance I can and make it as comfortable for the players as possible? You know, I was listening to you tell that story about uh, the Kurt Mazur. Is that how you say it? Mazur. Mazur. Uh, I was just think, I was just imagining the players watching him stare down the horn player who missed the note, and they're probably thinking, oh my goodness, I'd better not miss something, otherwise I'm going to... And then they start thinking about making mistakes, and then they're, it seems to me they're more prone to make mistakes than they were before. Absolutely. I mean, they're, 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 in a way, you know, when Herbert von Karajan conducted, he conducted the concerts with his eyes closed. Now, I'm not a believer in that. I, I believe in eye contact. But what he did by doing that was take that element off the table. Uh, it was all about listening and feeling that great music. And he didn't want to distract the players by staring at them. Now, a conductor like Zubin Mehta does the opposite. Zubin loves to stare at people. Uh, and, you know, some obviously he likes it and some people must like it. But then others must say to themselves as he's staring at them, why is he staring at me? <laughs> you, know, you don't make music when, when you say, why is he staring at me? Mm. Um, I, I, I just had a question about the conducting style because conductors sort of have, a, especially orchestral conductors, they have this reputation of being really flamboyant and, you know, kind of maybe a sh- little bit of showy when they're on the podium. But you were talking about the Rite of Spring, which in case you're not familiar with, is a very difficult, a lot of time signatures, a lot of time changes. It's very difficult to, uh, to play, let alone keep up with all of the, everything going on with the score. So what is the balance between, um, I guess what's the, what's the mentality of a conductor to be sort of a showman? And when do they have to tone that down just a little bit to, make sure that they can actually lead the orchestra? Well, you're talking to someone who doesn't believe that conductors should be showmen or showwomen. Conductors are, are the, the conduit to the music. They are the servants of the music. Their job is to bring the music to life as much as possible and to be, uh, you know, sometimes it may it may be good to do with a little flamboyance. Maybe it would be good to jump up and down once. Maybe it's good to have a huge big beat, of course. But as as a rule, I, I don't think that's that's. I, th- I find that to be distracting. Uh, now there are some great conductors who who who've done that. You know, Leonard Bernstein's a perfect example, uh, and he did it uh, genuinely. He wasn't putting on a show, um, but. It could be distracting musically. So, uh, and then when you get to really difficult passages, as you're referring to the changing meters and the rise spring, I mean, you, you, there's just one job there: be clear. You have to be clear. And yes, uh, sometimes 
we, we choose not to be clear on purpose so that people are forced to listen more. You know, what, what, what a great orchestra like the All-Star Orchestra, they listen, they play like chamber music. And, and what you want to do is give them the opportunity to listen and not impose these, these kind of uh, uh, autocratic beats on the ensemble. So, yes, the other thing about conducting that's interesting is every orchestra has a different, every conductor has a different style, has a different technique. If you play the trumpet, you know, you yeah, you know, there are different techniques, of course, but basically you're pushing the buttons down in the same way, you're breathing in a reasonable way, you're tonguing in a similar way. Uh, the embouchure may be the biggest difference. Uh, with conducting, everybody's so different. Your technique is so individual. And, uh, and orchestras have to read that, and you have to read their response to that technique. So, you know, again, for me, um, we conductors are not conducting for the audience. We're conducting primarily for the music and for the players. Therefore, you know, if you watch, watch my style of conducting, hopefully I'm clear when I need to be. Uh, there are moments when the orchestra really needs you to be clear and you got to be clear. And then other times, maybe not. Um, and that's okay, too. So we all it's, all, it's interesting to watch. You watch some of the old timers, watch someone like Richard Strauss conduct, and he looks like a time beater. He does very little except beat time. Um, but obviously when he conducts Mozart or Strauss, the music comes out very well. So whatever, whatever his method is, it's, it works. So, so sometimes conductors are intentionally, they intentionally, uh, lose the beat or how, I don't know how you say vague. it. I would say vague. Yeah, a little yeah. ambiguous. If you are ambiguous or vague, the orchestra has no choice but to follow each other. Really? And, and that's a good thing because it mm. is forcing them to listen. I mean, if you have sometimes some bad ensemble, some conductors put down very difficult, hard, uh, angular beats. Others, if the orchestra is good enough, they won't. They'll just let it go and they'll find their way and it'll be easier and better. <laughs> it's so funny because I've been to so many concerts and I'll watch the conductor and I'll think, how can they possibly follow what he's doing? But this that's brings. <laughs> <laughs> that's also true, but that, you know, that that has a lot more to do with the rebound downbeat thing that we have at mm. our disposal right. or to a flaw. I mean, I conduct both downbeats and rebounds, so sometimes the beat looks like it's up in the air, and sometimes it looks like the beat's down on the bottom. And both ways work; both are effective, and you use them for different things. In the audience, very often, mm. the rebound beat makes the orchestra seem like they're playing extremely late, right? And uh, and and well, sometimes they may be, but very often it's just it's just a kind of attack that the conductor is looking for. It's a complicated question. In some ways, the most uh, important question that uh, that uh, we deal with. That brings a lot of clarity to my orchestral viewing experience. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Uh, my next question is about staying focused. Obviously, you travel quite a bit. You've, I mean, just before this interview, you traveled all, I think, all over the world. And uh, with the Seattle Symphony, you're constantly changing personnel with, you know, people coming out and you have subs coming in all the time and doing a lot of traveling. What are some techniques or some practices that you employ to ensure that you stay focused with what you're doing as a conductor? Um, well, first of all, uh, when I'm conducting, and I'm not sure if everybody's the same as me, I, I, I never think about anything else. I never daydream. I never think about, you know, 
dinner or have uh, what my uh, if I'm going to have a martini after the concert. I only think about one thing, and that's the music. And the intensity of that focus is quite something. Now, I don't know how I learned it. I don't know how I developed it. But I would say I almost never, ever lose focus when I'm conducting. When I was a player, I would lose focus sometimes. Because when I was in the New York Philharmonic, you know, you're doing the same concert four nights a week. Sometimes the parts aren't as interesting as, as other times. And I can still play great, but not, not be as focused. As a conductor, you have little opportunity not to completely focus. What I try to do, I always prepare myself as best I can. Now, in an ideal world, I take a nap in the afternoon. That's my way. I don't have to. But if I can, I will. And when I say a nap, I mean, I, I, I actually get into bed and spend between 20 minutes and an hour sleeping, no matter what. And then I get up as if it's the morning and I have my cup of coffee. I make sure I have a little protein so I have energy and I like to get to the hall early so that I'm not worried about traffic or about what well, I'm going to be on time. Uh, and then I just study a lot. <laughs> and by studying a lot, you really end up helping your focus, not, not hurting your focus because you, you don't have the nerves of not being sure of yourself. Uh, and I, I guess uh, it's interesting because I do it in sports, too, because I, I used to play uh, tennis when I was a kid. And um, and I got pretty good. And it wasn't the game it is today. And I lost focus. And I started daydreaming about music and thinking about music when I played. I said, I, gotta, I can't do this anymore. It's not for me. So I started skiing. And so as I was a beginner and as I got better and better, I focused more and more on my skiing because it never it never came as easily to me as other things. And it was great because I could ski and not think about music. Well, then I, I got, had a little accident, as one tends to do on occasion as a skier, and I became act, very active playing tennis again. And of course, the game has changed a lot. A lot, lot more shifting of grips, a lot more um, uh, issues. Uh, and so now when I play tennis, which I do quite often, I'm as focused as, well, I'm not as focused, but close. I don't daydream anymore because I'm thinking so much about the game and, and the subtleties of the game. So in a way, this kind of focus, whether you're doing it in sports, whether you're doing the music, or whether, you, whether you're doing it as a lecturer, or even this conversation you and I are having, I mean, I can tell you and I both are perfectly focused on this conversation. I am not thinking about what I'm going to do later tonight. And that kind of thing, it's also a focus of, of eyes. So for example, you get into a room, you talk to someone, you talk to that person. If you start, if your eyes start looking around to see who else you should talk to, you're not focusing, you're not doing a service to that person you're discussing, and they'll notice. So it, it, the lack of focus people, especially as a conductor, people notice in a, in a moment. Well, we're about to focus on the hot seat upon which Gerard Schwartz is about to sit. But before we do that, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. Jerry Schwartz, you are now on the hot seat. Do you think you can stand the heat? Well, it depends upon how hot it is. All right. It is five minutes before you go on stage for an important performance. What are you doing? Well, um, as a conductor, it's it's uh, everybody's different. So I always go through all my scores, even if I've done the piece a hundred times. I, I always, but right before I go out, I am... If you were backstage with me, you'd think I'm the most relaxed person in the world. I'm fooling around, talking to the stage crew, walking a little bit. 
I'd like to get the show on the road. I'm very impatient. I don't like to be standing back there waiting. And when I hate speeches on the stage I, and, uh, um, but as soon as I walk, as soon as I take that step on the stage, I am in that piece, whatever the piece is. So much so that this is going to sound absurd, but it's true. When I have to, let's say at the beginning of an orchestra season we used to have in Seattle, I would have to do the Star Spangled Banner. The librarian would have to put a note on the stand that said Star Spangled Banner, or I would forget it. Because from the moment I get on the stage, I am so focused on what I'm going to conduct of important, not to say Star Spangled Banner is not important, but you know what I mean, what Brahms or Beethoven, whatever, I forget, oh, Star Spangled Banner. It kind of is an interruption in my concentration. So my librarian, Pat Takashi, would always put a sign out, Star Spangled, or anything else that I had to do that wasn't part of the regular musical performance. I, you know, it's interesting. The five minutes before doesn't affect me much. But from the moment I step foot on that stage, it's I'm in another world. Hmm. What is the best performance-related advice you've ever received? I, I, I think the, the, the best advice was was the one about as a player convincing yourself that you can do it and do it well and i think the other most important advice and this advice i give all the time is always put the music first always always as long as you focus on the music uh it life will be easier for you as a performer if you focus on technical issues, if you focus on what people are thinking, if you focus on anything like that, it will be a deterrent for the, the, the possibility of a great performance. So it's what I say. So I said to my little kids when they were growing up playing, you know, Suzuki violin, think about the music, you know, at the age of eight. I'm, I'm not, I, I, of course, I told them what that meant, but um, it, it really is the key to success and uh, preparation is the other key, but no one ever said that to me. No one ever said, oh, you have to be much better prepared uh, so that if you only produce 80%, it's still sensational. Hmm. But that's reality. That's how well prepared you have to be. Put the music first and success will follow. Can you More share? Or less, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can you share one tip for our listeners to help deal with stage fright? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've uh, never had stage fright, so I'm not a good person to give advice about it. But I know that the only time, only times in my life I've ever been nervous has been when I haven't been as prepared as I should be. Hmm. It's happened very rarely because I'm such a meticulous worker, but it has happened. And if you're not as thoroughly prepared as you should be, uh, you will have stage fright. You will have nerves. No question. So the better and, and prepared and, and the better preparation and depth preparation, the, the better you'll do. It's like anything else. If, if you watch my all-star shows and I talk expert uh, off the cuff, uh, about subjects, I have an hour worth of information to give about pictures in an exhibition. And I talk for five minutes hmm. because I'm over prepared. And then I can think about. To distill in a sense what's the most important thing I want to say. So the, the sense over preparation is good. I mean, I remember working for years with a great horn player in Aspen, Philip Farkas, who was first one in Chicago. And Phil 
would practice all the solos over and over and over again before the concert. I hear him backstage, we're doing, you know, whatever the piece was, doing the, the Frankty Minor. He would play it a hundred times, well, not a hundred times, he played it 10, 12 times. I, you know, it would drive me crazy. But his attitude was, the more times I get it perfectly, the more confident I will feel. And it worked for him. He was one of the most accurate horn players ever. All right, this last question for the hot seat segment of this interview is a doozy, so I hope you're prepared. Imagine that you are on stage conducting, let's say, the All-Star Orchestra. It's the end of the performance. The audience is on its feet applauding. Okay, so it's not the All-Star Orchestra because you don't That's have okay. an audience. <laughs> it's, we'll the it it's the Seattle Symphony. The audience is on its feet applauding. They don't want any more, and they don't want any less. Everything is absolutely perfect. What have you just done? Give us details, venue, repertoire, mad, bandmates, get creative. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's, that, that's, uh, that's really hard for, uh, for me because I, ha I have done so many concerts. Mm. But, you know, I'm about to be 70, and I've been doing concerts since I was 16, <laughs> and lots of concerts, and wonderful, wonderful pieces. Um, it, I used to have, to have an expression, which I used to, when I was in Seattle, I used to use one of would come off stage after what I thought was a great performance and the audience loved it. I would come off and I'd say to Joe Cook, who was our head stage, backstage, uh, uh, person, uh, and that's how that goes. Mm. And so for me, the times I feel the best are not when. The audience is most effusive, even though I love it that, that when they are, that they are. But when I feel like we have made a great performance, and conversely, even if somebody loves it, if it doesn't go as well as I would like, and no matter how much uh, the audience responds, I, of course, I'm thrilled that they would like it. But you know, you, 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 you are so critical personally. We are all so critical of ourselves that, that you always want to do better. And, and I guess, you know, in terms of, of the repertoire, what makes you the happiest? Well, for me, it can be a Mozart symphony and it can be a Bruckner symphony and it can be a Mahler symphony and it can be a Strauss tone poem. I, I, you know, I don't have any, I mean, it could even be the Messiah of Handel or the Beethoven Ninth. So there's so many pieces that are, that are meaningful, uh, especially, uh, after uh, so many years of doing it that I really, I, I can't pick one piece. I can't pick one performance, uh, but uh, I'm always so grateful if the audience likes what we do and appreciates it. Uh, it is it is very touching, and when some, I mean I know some people say, "Oh, in some city I'm conducting something in the audience, oh they stand up all the time." You know, if they stand up, that means they liked it, mm -hmm. and even if you think that they're not being discriminating, they liked it, and it's not important. I think it's really important. So when audiences stand up, it makes me very happy. And other people, oh, they're not discriminating. You know, they're discriminating. They didn't have to come even. <laughs> All right. Jerry Schwartz is my guest. He is the uh, l former longtime conductor of the Seattle Symphony and now the uh, conductor laureate of the Seattle Symphony. Also the concurrent leader of the All-Star Orchestra, which you can find at allstarorchestra.org. Jerry Schwartz, thank you so much for being on the show. James, great pleasure to be with you always. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics. 
telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Are you a true listener? Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to learn more about the show and subscribe to my email newsletter. You can also find us on Facebook, where we record a live Pay It Forward Friday episode each Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just type in James Newcomb on Trumpet.com into your browser to find the Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we will be in your earballs soon. You're still here. You must like this show or something. Well, I've got a special offer for you for hanging in there to the very end and proving yourself to be a true listener. I have a brand new, and it is exclusive for devoted fans of the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. It is called The Secret Chamber of Don Clarino. It's brand new. I don't even know what's going to come of it. I'm honestly not even really involved in it, but I'm contractually obligated to tell you about it as an employee of the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. So if you want to learn more about it, here's the URL, trumpetdynamics.live forward slash DC, trumpetdynamics.live forward slash DC. It's a short registration process and you'll be in there. Okay. I don't know if I'm even allowed to be in there, honestly, but check it out. See if you like it. Later.